Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. In her inspiring new book, Muslim Women's Quest for Justice, Gender, Law and Activism in India, Menjia Hong Shalayer charts the strivings and creative struggles of Muslim women organizations in contemporary North India for gender justice. Carefully historicized and brimming with nuanced analysis, this book shows the discursive and political strategies through which overlapping and at times competing women organizations navigate a contested and complicated public sphere as they seek to curate a gender emancipatory understanding of Islam. The major strength of this book is the way it presents a vivid picture of the quest for gender justice on the ground, leavened by such critical processes as the composition of gender-just Nikanamas. This important new book will engage the interests of a range of scholars and courses on Islam, gender, South Asia, and Islamic law and society. Here now is my conversation with Professor Menjia Hong Shalayer. Hello, Menjia. How are you doing? I'm good. Hi, Shirali. How are you? Uh, very good. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, for uh, coming to uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, terrific book uh, about a very important subject that uh, uh, not many of us would have known about. Uh, so this is a really a remarkable exploration that you've done of uh, these Muslim women in uh, Lucknow and uh, North India. Before we get to the book, uh, Menja, uh, a question uh, that is a tradition of New Books in Islamic Studies, uh, which is, uh, could you share with our listeners a bit about how you became a scholar of uh, South Asia, Islam, Muslim societies? What is the story behind your journey? Um, the book is basically a part of a larger journey that started in 2005 when I um, did research on a tribal women's court in Udaipur. So I am trained as an anthropologist and I have also a background in international law. And I have been interested from very early in my studies in South Asia because I've traveled South Asia quite a bit. And I started learning the language at some point and I also studied under a Indian professor, Shalini Randeria, um, who is herself a sociologist and legal anthropologist apologies and kind of directed me to some of the questions that I take up in my book and my previous research. So in 2005, I had the opportunity to go and study a tribal women's court a little bit outside of Udaipur. Um, which was set up by an NGO called Asta, uh, together with women's rights groups uh, from the MENA community. And what is really unique about this women's courts and really fascinated me right from the beginning was that they managed to create a space where the, the, the voices of the women were heard and where the cases were brought in a manner that it, um, it focused on the well-being of the women rather on ideas of respectability or to, um, respect of family and family honor. Um, so the question was obviously, like, how does a, a women's court in this very context function, which is a very patriarchal context? Um, and as you probably know, we do have the, the caste panjayas, the jati panjayas are very well functioning and very men-dominated. Women are often they're not, not um, allowed to bring cases to these um, forums. Um, you know, we think about most cases that reach these forums are cases that pertain to family and marriage, um, speaking of domestic violence and maintenance and custody, in some cases even rape, divorce, 
is another big repudiation for marriages. So that's one one forum that women cannot access. And another forum that is difficult for women to access are the state courts in Udaipur themselves, which also function um, in a very patriarchal manner, but more often than not, they're not interested in taking up cases of poor tribal women specifically. Um, so this tribal court has been a wonderful place where they manage to put in the forefront the issues and concerns and lives of women and how they did it is really interesting because and that's that's the uniqueness basically of that court is that they integrated the constitution discourses on the constitution national and international frameworks on human and women's rights and translated them um, into a local context that makes sense for these women and men who were um, a part of the discussions and mediations. And if we look at the larger scholarship, specifically on political science and women's studies, who mostly focus on the cor- on the state courts and on the state and its responsibility to protect women under the law, we, we find very little discussion of the validity of community councils, for example, or community forums um, in regards to women's rights. And similarly, we have a large body of anthropological and sociological um, work that focuses specifically on community councils um, who also do not really um, ask questions in regards of how they co-play with uh, state courts. So in my research, I kind of tried to break these dichotomies between the state and the community and look very specifically of how women's institutions, women's forums in the area of family law become a space where these two entities are merged and hybridized where we have, again, like discourses on international legal frameworks and constitution that are hybridized, vernacularized in a very specific context. Um, so that brought me to the research on the on Muslim women's rights activism in Lucknow for my dissertation where I came across a newspaper article on a, a Mahila Adalat, Muslim Mahila Adalat in Lucknow. And I packed my bags and I went to Lucknow to kind of do a comparative study between this tribal women's court and the Muslim women's court. Um, so what I found there is less the court, which didn't really exist, because it was more like it seems a media um, a, a media enterprise than a reality. But what I found is a large amount of Muslim women's rights organizations who are currently contributing to debates on family law in India. So this is where I come from and my background. So to begin with a broad uh, uh, question, uh, which is how would you describe the central argument uh, that you pursue in this book? What is the central point that you that you make in this book? I mean, the first central point that I make is that the state is not the only dispenser of justice. The state is not the only place where um, justice is produced. Um, but there is a variety, specifically in India, like in most post-colonial countries, you have a variety of legal institutions that are less formal but contribute in a very important way to the realization of social justice and women's rights. So looking specifically at Islam and these Muslim women's rights organization and and, uh, Muslim family law, I also argue that um, Islam is not an obstacle to the realization of gender justice and uh, women's rights, as it is often portrayed in um, modernist scholarship, again, that focuses primarily on the state. In fact, and this is the the heart of my research, in fact, women have come forward and spoke or have 
realized within the framework of Islam um, ideas of gender justice and uh, women's rights. And again, when we look at the scholarship, a lot of the assumptions that we that are made is that the Muslim women are the oppressed subject. Um, they do not step out of the house. They don't have a voice. Um, they're mute. They're invisible. And my research shows, and I think very pointedly, that Muslim women do have agency, um, even if it's not in a classical liberal sense, but they, they're not stripped of their agency just because they um, struggle for justice within a framework of Islam. But it is a different form of agency that needs to be accounted for. So these are my three main points, so to speak, that I make in the book. I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about the context and the actors. So the book is based on in Lucknow, and you p- primarily focus on three major uh, Muslim organizations uh, in Lucknow, the All, All India Muslim Women's Personal Law Board, the Bharatiya Muslim Mahila Andolan, BMMA, and then Bazme Khawateen. So could you speak a bit about these organizations, uh, some features of them, and the context uh, of Lucknow? Could you contextualize your study a bit? So there is no single Muslim community in Lucknow, but they're very diverse in terms of language, in terms of education, in terms of class, in terms of race, in terms of caste. So the oldest women's organizations that I have looked at is a Sunni women's organization, uh, Bas Mehwatin, that was established in 1934 under colonial rule, and basically with the goal to uh, for women to come together as a club and discuss you know, subjects of Parda and um, look more specifically at the Quran and how it relates to women. This women's organization has, over time, um, become much more of an activist organization, um, where they actively contribute to debates on, on women's rights and social justice um, in India. But they're still very locally organized by gathering women within the city and, again, discussing um, ideas of family and gender um, at seminars and workshops. Um, literacy is another um, subject that they take up um, and more broadly, ideas of, of Parda, again, but more law-related. Um, and what's interesting is that within the last, I would say, 12 years, um, there was a proliferation of Muslim organizations in the city, which basically has, can be understood against the political background of communalism, um, of the, you know, the, the debates that are ongoing in India right now um, and have been ongoing since independence on Muslim family law and who really has the authority to speak on behalf of the Muslim community when we think about um, family law and marriage. The All India Muslim Personal Law Board has taken on the task to um, speak on behalf of the Muslim community. And the, the All India Muslim Women's Personal Law Board sees itself as a, as a direct like counterplayer um, for the All India Muslim Personal Law Board, where they directly challenge the authority, the legal authority of uh, the Deobandi. Um, the All India Muslim Women's Personal Board itself has been challenged a year later by the establishment of the um, Bharatiya Muslim Mahila Andolan, the Indian Muslim Women's uh, Movement, um, who is more of a secular movement and has come out of the of the national Indian 
women's movement that have been dissatisfied with the underrepresentation of Muslims in the in the women's movement, but equally dissatisfied with the representation of Muslims on a political level, and have taken it up themselves to speak on behalf of women within a or through um, a lens of secularism, but using um, the language of Islam. So how did these uh, organizations and uh, uh, their leaders, how have they gone about challenging patriarchy and male hegemony in the public sphere? You spent a lot of time discussing uh, and giving us examples of how they've gone about doing that in the book. Could you share with us a couple of examples of how they've done that in the public sphere? Mm-hmm. So what, what has been interesting, I think, in Lucknow is in the last few years, these women have become extremely visible within the public sphere, which is a very men-dominated public sphere. I think there have been fatwas released very recently that women um, should not be allowed um, in engaging in public religious lives because it's, it's, uh, it would disturb the order of the public sphere. And these women have challenged these various ideas of modesty and, and gender as it ex- exists within these very patriarchal narratives of, of Islam and have made, again, space to make their voices heard. Um, we have the, the Bas Mechwatin who... Um, have established the, the only women's park in Lucknow. It's a park in the center of old Lucknow um, that basically features their weekly gatherings or offers room for their weekly gatherings. Um, every now and then the, the, the leader, um, Shehina Sidraj, she um, guides prayers, namaz in, the, in this in this park for women, which again is something quite unique in India where women are not allowed to lead prayers in public. Um, so to challenge, I think, male authority in this regard um, and, and making it visible by inviting the press to talk about it um, has made waves in India. Um, another organization, the All Indian Muslim Women's Personal Law Board, they have set up their own mosque, a women's mosque, just a little bit outside of Lucknow. Um, again, there is a women's mosque that exists in Tamil Nadu that has been established a little, a few years earlier than the one in Lucknow. Um, but it's it's a very um, specific feature Um, that is designed to bring women together within the public sphere and allow them to go to the mosque and and give their Friday prayers, something that women in Lucknow, Mochel in India, they don't do, or Muslim women. Um, Again, the the, the All India Muslim Personal Law Board has spoken very uh, vocally against these establishments of Muslim uh, women's mosques, arguing that women do not have a place in public and and would disturb the idea of of praying peacefully for men because they cannot concentrate anymore. Um, And the the Bharatiya Muslim Mahila Andolan, they have challenged um, the public order in the sense of, of, um, of 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 a marriage that was very unusual. Naish Hassan, um, was married by a women's Hazi, um, Sayyida Hamid, who has agreed to perform the marriage after she has um, sought for permission of, of, of different um, imams outside of India. And this, this, in, this wedding was nationalized um, through the media. Um, it was a big hype. And it was, as she says, a wedding that has never been seen before in this regards. Um, 
So this is basically three very specific instances and in how we see how these women have made strides into the public sphere and challenged the male supremacy within this context. Tell us a bit about these uh, gender-just nikanamas that you spent uh, quite a bit of time talking about towards yeah. the end of your book. Uh, why are they so important uh, to the cause of these Muslim women's organizations and activists in Lucknow? And what sorts of changes have they implemented uh, to traditional nikanamas to make them more gender-just? Uh, could you give us some uh, examples on that? Um, yes. So the, the discussion on the codification of Muslim personal law, I think, has been ongoing since independence. And we have the... The, the Muslim Personal Sharia Application Act that regulates marriages or not regulates marriages because it's hardly codified, um, and which leaves ample room for, again, the, the Muslim clergy to come up with their own interpretations of, of the religious text in regards to marriage and the family. Um, already in the 1990s, there were Muslim women's organizations who have tried to kind of come up with a contract, with a written document that stipulates the right and responsibilities of uh, the spouses within the marital union. We have stipulations in terms of economic rights similar to the Shia personal law board, um, Nikanama. It also stipulates that women, I know they have more, I should be allocating more money beyond the Eidat period. Um, it prohibits triple talaq altogether. Um, again, a, a practice that is still very prevalent um, among the Muslim community and is right now discussed um, when we are waiting the Supreme Court decision, I think in July, whether or not it is constitutional. Women, I mean, one of the, the other um, rights that's been incorporated is, um, is Hula, women's right to take divorce from her husband, which is in concordance with the um, Dissolution of the Muslim Marriage Act. So we see kind of an infusion of um, national or state legislation into these contracts that are not a part of the state, um, it also declares registrations of marriages mandatory. A lot of marriages are not registered, and women often do not have proof that I have been married to this person. Um, an age of consent of 18 years for women um, to kind of push against child marriage that um, is prevalent in India among Muslims and Hindu, um, the same. Um, and also includes the practice of um, talaq ibain. Um, we also have the, 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 the kanama offered by the Bharatiya Muslim Mahilandolan is basically a step, and from that point of view, a step towards codification of Muslim personal law in India. So they, they take the constitution and the, the legal framework that exists already at the national level and translate that directly into the Nikanama. So they have basically outlawed any kind of unilateral divorce Divorce has to be mutual and has to be based on, on, on consent, mutual consent. Um, again, the age of marriage for women is 18 and for men it's 21, um, which reflects the, the CEDAW. The financial rights of women is another important part of that economy. Women, very often when they are rejected from their husband or by their husbands, they end up with hardly anything. Um, and the state does not provide them with financial support. There's no welfare system in place. So the financial rights uh, aspect is a really important part of that nikanama where the meher has been paid at the time of marriage and not, not later on and cannot be forgiven. The amount of meher has been has to be written down in the contract. Uh, women have an equal right to all property that has been accumulated during the time of marriage, um, which 
is something that is nowhere stated in the other contracts. Um, similar to this recent Supreme Court decision, this Nikonema also asks for a lump sum money in case of a divorce that would allow for the woman to be comfortably for a certain amount of time beyond the three months of EDAT. Um, and the maintenance payment for all the 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 contracts have to be registered with a official but through the government government governmental registration. The the, the the contact information of the husband is um, included in the Nikanama to make sure that you can find and locate the husband. The amount of money that he makes in his job is also stipulated. So it's a very detailed contract or document that leans very heavily on the constitution national legal frameworks, but also um, human and international human and women's rights frameworks. Uh, so, as a final substantive uh, question, uh, could you uh, tell us a bit about the policy recommendations that you offer towards uh, the end of your book that are based on your analysis and your research? I mean, based on the based on the on, on the analysis that I did and the findings that I made, um, is that again, you know, it is really important to kind of come away from a, a state-centered focus in discussions and debates and approaches to women's rights more generally and to Muslim women's rights very specifically here. Um, as I have argued also in, in, in the Chapter 5, um, where I look more in terms of how family law cases are mediated and adjudicated within the women's organizations themselves, who very often act like little uh, doorstep courts, um, that these organizations and forums actually are an inherent part of the legal landscape and contribute tremendously to the realization of women's rights on the ground and very often have way more um, sway or a more impact, direct impact on women's lives than the state courts who seem, a little, who seem either removed or too expensive or are very sluggish and do not work properly, where women have said it takes them up to 12 years to get a divorce, whereas they can get it through the women's organization uh, much faster. So to kind of look at how NGOs and organizations um, in this regard contribute to the realization of women's um, of women's rights, I think is really important. Um, and look at them as spaces where the state is not absent, but as spaces where the state is incorporated to some extent um, in terms of, of the discourses that they use, the legal discourses, um, and which creates a, a true space of, of interlegality. Speaking of interlegality, another, another um, suggestion that I make is to look at, the, at these at the legal landscape more generally, not in terms of a dichotomy where you have the state courts on the one hand and um, the non-state courts or the non-state forums, community councils on the other hand, but really look at them as a part of a of a of a of a, of a very complex and and um, and dense socio-legal landscape where they cooperate um, to some extent, but they are in constant. Um, in, in, in constant conversation with one another, the state de facto um, acknowledging and 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 um, accepting the, the decisions that are made within these non-state legal forums, and, this, and the non-state legal forums incorporating state legislations and also draw on the authority of the police and the judges. So to look more at the interaction between these two entities, um, a third. 
a third um, recommendations that I make also kind of based on my analysis of the cases that have come to these women's um, organizations is to kind of shy away or come away from the idea that only classic liberal ideas of justice and equality as I put this, are, are adequate to address women's rights and women's position within society, but that very often these ideas, these very abstract and formal ideas of formal justice do not hold or do not have a, a big impact in a, in a context that works very differently, where women are not just individuals, but they're part of a larger social network, with, um, and their identities are not just... Um, in regards to the state, but also in regards to the family and the larger community. So how can you straddle, again, women's identities that are very diverse? Um, they're, you know, they're wives, they are mothers, they're sisters, they're, um, and they are a part of the community. Um, and this, these identities are very often not addressed um, through these liberal um, legal frameworks. Um, and again, I think these women's organizations, both in Rajasthan and the ones in Lucknow, have shown that they are a true space of hybridization and vernacularization, that they're not, again, um, removed from the state or removed from the community, but build a bridge between um, these different entities and act as a space of conversation also about women's rights and, and uh, social justice more generally spoken. So to look at these organizations and to incorporate them in efforts of implementing women's rights, I think is really important for, um, for establishing social justice on the ground. And last but not least, you know, this doesn't mean that the state does not have any importance anymore, that we should leave the state out of these conversations or they don't have, it doesn't have the responsibility to um, ensure women's rights on the ground, um, but to just go beyond the, the state-centered approaches that still are very prevalent um, in, in, in development work. So as we come uh, towards the end of our time, uh, could you uh, tell us a bit about uh, what's the next project that you uh, will be working on? Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of this work has been done in the context of, um, in the post-colonial context, where, where there's a very strong legal pluralism that exists, so to speak, where we do have different courts that coexist and work on different levels, but we hardly ever think about informal justice and, and the working of informal justice um, in, in Europe or in the U.S., for example, um, where, again, we have a very strong focus on, on, the, on the state legal system. So in my you know, in, in my project that I'm developing right now, which is a project on immigrant Muslim women's rights access to the courts against the, the background of the war on terror and counterterrorism, where I argue that specifically when looking at New York City, where I currently live, how Muslim women's access to the courts has been hampered and how women navigate that very specific context and what role really like community mosque or neighborhood organizations play um, for the adjudication specifically of domestic violence cases. Because I do believe in a context of rising Islamophobia, in a context where the relationship between law enforcement and the community is, is uh, broken, um, that a lot of women and men do not choose to address the courts, but rather address an organization that's more familiar to them.
Muslim Women's Quest for Justice, Gender, Law and Activism in India, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Thank you so much for your time for this uh, wonderful uh, book, uh, which will spark some very important and interesting conversations in multiple fields, including Islamic studies, South Asian studies, and the study of gender, law and society more broadly. So thank you so much for your time uh, and for this opportunity. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Menjia Hong Shalayer on her important new book, Muslim Women's Quest for Justice. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies.